Tuesday, August 4th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for taking the time to listen. I appreciate that. You could be listening to anything right now, and the fact that you're listening to this, it doesn't go unnoticed or unappreciated. I don't take it for granted, so thank you. Today, I want to introduce you to a CEO named David Simnick. He runs Soapbox Soaps, a soap company. They recently started making hand sanitizer, and now Soapbox Soaps has blown up to become one of the top hand sanitizer brands in America. This is one of those situations where it's tempting to throw the phrase overnight success around. But to call Soapbox Soaps an overnight success would not only be incorrect, it also glosses over the journey and the mission of the company and its founders. There are a lot of reasons to like this company. There are a lot of reasons to root for this company. So here's my conversation with David Simnick, starting with asking him to take me back to the very beginning when he first got the idea to start a soap company. Soapbox starts with, I used to work for the United States Agency for International Development as a subcontractor, which is a glorified way of saying like a paid intern. And my job there was to find chief of parties for new projects. And I did so much research about programs that I completed and realized that there was a dearth of focus on hygiene. So in water sanitation and hygiene work around the world, uh, often uh, a lot of focus is on water and there's a lot of growing attention towards sanitization. Thank you very much, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. But back in 2009, there just wasn't that many people who cared about hygiene. So called up my best friend, was like, hey, we're going to start a soap company where each and every time we sell one of these items, we're going to donate a bar of soap. And that in turn is going to help fund all these NGOs around the world, as well as here at home. Uh, food stamps don't cover hygiene products. So it's actually one of the most requested items in food pantries, as well as at homeless shelters, especially if they have a shower program. So uh, we started with the charity in mind. Basically, the business was an afterthought to, hey, let's actually go out and do this good. So that was that was number one. Uh, but we kept doing it as an evenings and weekends project. I literally made the first batch of soap in my kitchen in 2010. Um, so enter fight club joke here. <laughs> 20, 22 year old male living with six other men starts soap company. Uh, and yeah, it was, it was strange and weird. Um, but Dan Dahl, uh, one of my best friends, uh, and I, and Eric Vaughn, another one of my best friends and Stephanie, same thing, uh, all started soapbox and, uh, Dan and I just continued to grow and build it. We went full time in 2012. We started mostly in natural food stores and channels and like that, uh, those type of retailers, then we started getting into to bigger box retailers in, in 2015. And we had just awful branding, like the worst designed bottles that you could imagine. They just looked really bad. Uh, and a lot of that was because we didn't know any better. Um, but then after we started getting on this distribution and growing our business, we started realizing that, hey, if we really wanted to grow this, if, if we wanted to, to expand, we just had to be better in so many different ways. So, uh, inter 2018, uh, we had worked with Anthem, which is this amazing design agency up in New York for about a year. Uh, we launched our new branding. We started picking up speed. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we doubled from 18 to 19. We doubled, we're on track to double again from 19 to 2020. Uh, then COVID hit. And, What's so interesting is one of our retail partners that we were in discussions with for about 18 months reached out to us and said, hey, do you make hand sanitizer? 
uh, in February. And we're like, uh, it's always been, in, we've always known how, um, because it's been in the, the product pipeline. Um, we make soap and shampoo and conditioner and body wash and hand sanitizer is, is very much along, uh, similar processes to, to make. So we got back to them and said, yeah, you know, we, we think we can make this. And then believe it or not, the next day we were on a call with Wegmans where they were like, Hey, we want to order 50,000 units of liquid hand soap, which on any given day, you know, a hundred plus store chain that's as amazing as Wegmans ordering 50,000 units is pretty significant. So we said, Hey, we, uh, we make hand sanitizer. Uh, do you guys need that as well? And they're like, Oh, you start, you started making hand sanitizer. That's great. We'll take a million. And we're like, what, what, what? <laughs> so, so very quickly, uh, we, we realized that, uh, oh my gosh, we're absolutely in the hand sanitizer business now. So, uh, things kept on growing and building. Uh, we then, uh, had a call with Walgreens and then we had a call with Harris Teeter and then we had a call with Rite Aid and then we had a call with Ascendant, which is the, uh, North America's largest office distributor. Like many people have never heard of Ascendant, but if you've ever bought through, uh, WB Mason or Staples or Office Depot, you're probably, you're probably buying Ascendant. Um, and then we just kept on going. Uh, we, we actually do the hand sanitizer now for some pretty big retail chains. Uh, so, so I think for us, the reason why we were given this opportunity, Chris, is uh, we've spent years having coffee, having coffee, breaking bread with all these buyers, and so many new people entered the industry in hand sanitizer when the two big guys couldn't. So when when Purell, which is owned by Gojo, privately held company, uh, basically was not able to fulfill demand because under the government basically said you need to fulfill the medical channel. And then Vijon, which does pretty much all of the private label hand sanitizers that you see in the market, plus uh, their own brand, Germex, uh, was completely uh, stripped out. Like There was no way they could keep up with demand for the retail space. That gave us a huge opportunity. There's a bunch of other people that realized that opportunity as well. The reason why Soapbox was able to succeed while many of these smaller brands was not is because we've been in the business for 10 years. And people, when we made that commitment, we said, hey, we're going to ship on time. They were like, I trust you because I met you at a trade shows. Uh, you're already a vendor. You know how to ship to my DCs, so on and so forth. And it sounds like going back to the start of Soapbox, you, know, you start with the mission in mind. It wasn't like you and your buddy got together, crunched the numbers and said, soap that's a profitable business there's an opportunity like it did it didn't but it sounds like in the intervening decade you and he and the other people on your team actually did put in the due diligence on not just making the packaging better the branding better all that sort of thing but starting to look into okay what other products are there you know, going into shampoo—that's a—that's an obvious move. Um, looking into hand sanitizer, so that you actually had the business side of it, if not completely locked down, you were certainly in starting from uh, a point of of greater intelligence and greater knowledge than you were at the beginning of Soapbox. Absolutely, uh, I would. We just continue to fail forward. So, like many founders, especially first-time founders. Uh, will tell you that can you learn from your failures before said failures like kill the kill your baby which that sounds incredibly drastic and it's not meant to be as such but the the the, the analogy is can 
you have that iteration cycle go faster than the mistakes that you made, really hurting your company and or your profitability and or even the livelihood of, of the brand. And I think one of the interesting things about Soapbox is we just at decision point after decision point over the past 10 years refused to give up. And uh, Dan Dahl, uh, who runs our whole supply chain and operations and product development, has as it's funny like don't take my word for it like there are industry trade magazines that have called this a supply chain miracle because uh unlike other brands that buy uh, a finished turnkey item from a potential supplier we actually sourced pretty much everything for the cap and fill facilities that were creating these hand sanitizers for us that's not normal right if we were to go to one of our uh, supply chain partners and say, Hey, can you make this? They'd be like, yeah, I can. I don't know the bottles or yeah, I can. I don't have the alcohol. Um, so then we went in the business of, of sourcing a lot of those raw components. Uh, and the, the hysterical stories I have, Chris, of, uh, uh people like fly by night trying to sell us fraudulent alcohol or, <laughs> Uh, no, seriously, it's one of the reasons why so many. I, I was just going to say, right like, now. as you're talking, I'm thinking to myself, where does one get a truckload of alcohol so that you can make uh, truckloads of hand sanitizer? Corn. <laughs> so the the simplest way I could say it is ethyl alcohol, corn. Uh, but and and America's got a ton of it. What is interesting, and this is a little inside baseball. The reason why so many hand sanitizers smelled so poorly uh, or just really bad at the early days of COVID is because not enough of that ethyl alcohol was up-spec'd to uh, USP grade or pharmaceutical grade. Um, a lot of it was either meant for fuel, which people stopped driving as much, so therefore they diverted a lot of that ethyl alcohol into hand sanitizer. But the problem is, is that that smells like ethyl alcohol and it smelled really bad. And, and we are, we are definitely not, uh, we had a couple batches go out that smelled like bad margar like margarita mix. It was, uh, it was, a, it was, it was a bit much. Thankfully, none of the stuff we make now, um, is anywhere close to that. Uh, but, um, we became a, a top hand sanitizer brand in the United States. We still are. And, and, and that to me is look, the soapbox story of how we pivoted really can be boiled down to persistence and relationships. And that is, uh, I've, I've listened to so many other consumer uh, product entrepreneurs that are like, Hey, this is not a tech startup. You're pivoting, uh, in a tech startup. You can come up with a whole brand new company over the weekend if you want, because your end product is, is zeros and ones with CPG. Now nah, your product is on someone's shelf. And either you got to pay to get that removed or you got to wait till the next reset of which oftentimes those are planned out eight to 12 months in advance. So now you just keep on working back the calendar. So if you want to pivot, oftentimes things take a year or two. So, so for us, it was a consistent belief that our mission was valuable enough to consistently, you know, be in the trenches and build this brand and thankfully, we've always made a phenomenal natural product that consumers really love. So we've just built the base of the following that, that really love our brand. And now, like it took us 10 years to donate 10 million bars, Chris. This year alone, we're going to donate well over 10 million. Like it's just, it's insane. And, and, and I'm, so, I'm so grateful to work with the amazing team that we have. 
and also all the amazing partners that we have. Like I could, I could run through a laundry list of, of all the retailers that are just phenomenal people to work with both on the buyer side, as well as you know everyone down to the clerk checking you out, which is just a wonderful team effort. So one of the things that we've talked about on this show uh, over the past few months, when it comes to consumer goods and in particular, the consumer retail industry in America is the ways in which to varying degrees of success, different national chains have innovated, have been able to um, meet their consumers in ways that they hadn't before, um, from grocery stores to enormous bricks and mortar retailers like Target and Walmart. Um, what have you seen from your position? I mean, I come at it from the standpoint of just a consumer and an investor. For someone who's in the business that you're in, what have the last four months been like in terms of um, essentially the mad scramble that all of these different businesses have been trying to undertake? I think that there, there are regional superpowers um, like Publix, like Meyer. Meyer is a current retailer. HEB owns Texas, current retailer of soapbox products. Uh, Wegmans, powerhouse in the Northeast as well as Mid-Atlantic, current retailer of soapbox. I promise this isn't a plug. <laughs> it, Hy-Vee, same thing with our, with our products in Iowa and the Midwest. They are innovation labs that the targets and the Walmarts learn from. Even, even Amazon, you know, we'll, we'll look at what is Wegmans doing to provide just a phenomenal experience for this customer. And I think what's so fascinating is seeing how all of them learn from each other and evolve. Uh, and it's, and it's happening faster and faster. And none of what I'm about to say uh, is going to be truly insightful because, uh, what was 20 years ago or 30 years ago, the veterans that we have a part of our team are like, look, buying used to be about relationships. Now buying is much more about data and about, you know, are you trading up the consumer when someone buys a soapbox product? Thankfully, uh, one, we have, we have double the loyalty than the category average. So we know that our mission of one for one isn't the reason she buys us the first time. It is absolutely the reason she buys us the second, the third and the fourth time which is phenomenal because when, when I'm able to go to a buyer and say, Hey, I'm, I'm giving you better margin. We're able to do a lot of great work together in the world. Um, as well as, um, I have stickiness that's going to drive a customer back into your doors or back onto your website or order through your distribution. That's phenomenal. Right. And the other thing is, is that I know for a fact that I built the basket. So soapbox products have a uh, far higher basket ring, uh, than other products. So when, when I bring that consumer into their door, I have a more valuable customer to them. And that like, we, like the ability for me to slice and dice that data in every different angle, um, even still brick and mortar, right? You'd only, you'd, you'd oftentimes think that, uh, that's only happening with online retailers, which there is more access to data, but I would say that brick and mortar has quickly caught up on that. And what you can glean from IRI or Nielsen is phenomenal, especially any of these, most of your listeners probably already know this, but any of the rewards program, they know pretty much everything about you. And, and from a, I'm a, as scary as that is from a vendor standpoint of what I am to those retailers, uh, that's phenomenal because I know what you buy and I know why you buy. And I know that if you buy one of our products, 
or one of our competitors, I, I know how to switch you over to us. Another thing we've seen over the last few months is, um, you know, obviously the, the major consumer goods companies, they want to work with the major retailers, but we've also seen them pivoting to essentially beef up their own e-commerce efforts. Um, you know, I mentioned a couple of times, uh, you know, Pepsi coming out with uh, snacks.com and just saying, Hey, yes, we want you to go to the grocery store, you know, and buy Frito-Lay products, but you can also buy it directly from us. How, how big a priority is that for you and your team to get people to go to your website or at this point in time, is that just not high on the priority list? I think so. Chris, phenomenal question. D to C is so fascinating. And as a, as a challenger brand, uh, because it's a podcast of doing air quotes, that's a, that's a, that's a funny way of saying, uh, we're small. <laughs> it's a bit, it's a better version. Hey, we're a top 10 sanitizer brand in the United States, but, but still, still a challenger brand. Uh, what is fascinating to me is, uh, D to C is about shipping weight like that. If you're a consumer brand, uh, shipping is everything because consumers have been trained by Amazon that you're getting your free shipping. Uh, and if I'm shipping you uh, a liter of shampoo, there's no way I'm making money at the price point that I want to sell it to you at. So the, I mean, we charge, we eat half the shipping. So like we just basically, anytime someone buys anything off our website, we're like, Hey, our pledge to our consumer base is that half of this is on us. So the margins that I deal with already are pretty tight because we want to be uh, a natural but yet accessible uh, product. So we want to be pretty close to Dove and pretty close to Soft Soap. Like we we want to offer a better product that's paraben free and EDTA free and free from dyes uh, and other different colorants, and we don't test on animals. All these things that that are that are near and dear to our heart. But yet we also don't want to have a price point where a consumer goes, eh, I'll just go with the, the standard thing that you know my mom bought and my mom's mom bought before that. That being said, what we have seen is our D to C has just blown up because sometimes uh, consu- well, consumers don't want to leave. Uh, uh, the moment we put something on Amazon, it sells out faster than we're able to replenish it. Um, and we have such a loyal base that, that's going to our site. I think it is smart for any brand uh, to think about how do you incorporate your own site and your own direct-to-consumer from the very get-go. And even if you don't have the economics to support it, you still need to be directly communicating with your customer. So for us, uh, our site is more informational about the brand and then we also offer her or him the opportunity to buy from the brand. Uh, but I, I think for us, it really comes down to, I am shipping liquid from here to all over the, the country. And that is very expensive. And there are consumer expectations on that. Two more things, and then I'll let you get back to your actual job. Um, I've been saying for a while on this show, um, with respect to Clorox, even though I don't own shares of Clorox, I cannot fathom that Clorox is not going to do more business in the next decade than they did in this past decade. Um, without 
you know, revealing too much because obviously you're a private company. Uh, when you look at the next couple of years, is it all about the hand sanitizer? No. So everything we sell is up double digits. Uh, most everything we sell is up at a SKU level. We have 120 SKUs now. Um, so we launched over 30 SKUs in three months, which uh, for any of those who know consumer, that's insane. Um everything has exploded. And my favorite line uh, to people who understand finance is we will do more in profit this year than we expected to do in gross revenue. That's a good line. That, <laughs> it's even, it's that, even better when it's true. <laughs> I, so, it's crazy, Chris. Like, I, so, so um, there have been some people who have come sniffing uh, in terms of, you know, our interest and, uh, you know, we welcome those conversations. Uh, I, you know, being a private company allows you a lot of flexibility. We have amazing shareholders. We have mostly family offices that have backed us in our mission from the get go. And uh, while I say, you know, like the, the future of where we're going is, um, we want to focus on creating natural products that are incredibly efficacious at making people truly healthy and safe. And that, that is our future. So uh, where we see Soapbox going is continuing to build long-lasting, sustainable relationships with our retail partners, both offline and online. Um, we've expanded into numerous other different channels. So uh, I was talking about the office channel through Ascendant, as well as Staples and a bunch of other uh, customers. Um, I was talking about the... Uh, growth into uh, food service. Uh, there's a couple customers that I've actually preferred that I do not name them. Um, there is rapid growth in, in retail. Um, what's so interesting about retail is you can just look at IRI or Nielsen, and it's basically a scorecard for the whole industry. Uh, and it's it's truly fun to be able to to see a hockey stick and then know that anyone in this industry can see that same hockey stick. So that that's been fun. Um, but I, I, you know, for us, it's also, it is so refreshing knowing that uh, one extra unit that we sell is not just, uh, is not just, you know, one more uh, natural product that we're able to offer our customer, but it also is one more unit that we can donate to our aid partners. Um, and especially right now as 501c3s and charitable efforts have really taken a hit on the amount of donations that have been coming through the door. We've been able to, to step up big time with them and say, look, your hygiene implementation budget, we got it and we can actually double it or triple it. And, and that has been the best part of the job. Last thing, separate from all the work you've been doing over the past four months, what are you doing to, stay sane during the pandemic or is there something you're watching on netflix are you like you know is it yoga is it crossword puzzles what 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 are you doing to take your mind off of work to the extent that that is even possible uh, the the running joke in the office is that no one here has slept for a couple months uh we think that there are incredible opportunities at hand that a moment like this only comes one time maybe twice in a company's history uh, and it is an absolute privilege and delight to just continue to, to work at building this uh, so that we can do more good. There's a bunch of new products that we're launching in, in the coming weeks. 
Uh, there's a bunch of new retailers that we're launching in the coming weeks. We're incredibly excited about what this means for our brand. I'm even more excited about what we're going to be able to offer to our customers as well as our aid partners. Yeah, I guess you can catch up on Tiger King at any point. Yeah, you know, I, you know, I, I, I feel like I've seen it. I haven't, but I feel like I get it. And and the other is once again, your listeners can't do this. I have the whole little man bun thing going. So so, and it's also I have blonde hair. So when I let my hair down, and if I wear a trucker hat, man, that is that is dangerously close, <laughs> dangerously close to a gentleman by the name of Joe Exotic. Yeah, he's not wrong about that. I know this is audio, but you're going to have to trust me. He can pull off that Joe Exotic kind of look. Seriously, though, if you want to learn more about the company and its mission, you can go to SoapboxSoaps.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.